We arrived in the state of Tennessee around midday. Our football team traveled from the Chicago area via a big bus. We got there with strict schedule for the afternoon. We were to eat, have a quick lunch before our game the next day. We would do a walkthrough that afternoon. We finished at around 3 o'clock, at which time we had a break until about 4.30 when we had a team meeting. I was a 19-year-old sophomore at the Trinity National University football team. Our head coach was Leslie Frazier, who currently coaches for the Buffalo Bills as the defensive coordinator. And he was very regimented in his structure and his program. And it wasn't anything I actually remember being given a manual about, but there was a culture on this football team that was clear. If the meeting was at 4.30, you showed up at 4.15. In fact, I can't remember anybody but a couple freshmen, maybe their first day or two that ever showed up anything later than 15 minutes early. When you got in the building, your hats were off. You said a lot of yes ma'ams and yes sir. There was no yelling and screaming. There, there, there didn't need to be. Coach had created a culture that the older players uh, infiltrated and trickled down to the younger players so that even as a freshman, I knew clearly what I was supposed to do. So by now being a sophomore, I knew what was expected of me. It was 3 o'clock, got to a hotel room. I remember one of, one of our players was watching Looney Tunes, which about put me to sleep. So I laid back on the bed, and the next thing I remember is the door being hit on with a huge thuds. The rest of our room woke up. If we were supposed to be at that meeting at 4.30, start time, which means we would have gotten there at 4.15, and all of a sudden we opened the door, and Travis, one of our senior offensive linemen, said, it is 4.26. I'd never seen what happens when you're late to a meeting, honestly. I mean, it just, it just didn't happen. We were on the third floor of this hotel. The, there was an elevator in the middle of the hallway, and, but the, or at one end of the hallway, but the other end was the stairs, but the, but the meeting room was way to the other side. It happened to be that a bunch of us on this third floor, we were in several rooms, all of us had fallen asleep. So you had about 16 offensive and defensive linemen. Those are the big boys. All of a sudden crying like babies as we're trying to figure out how do we get down there in four minutes. So we all bolted for the elevator at the same time. I still remember the look on that sweet old couple's face as they're bringing their suitcases with 16 large males running down the hallway crying. We get to the elevator. It's one of these glass elevators that overlooked the lobby, and we are piling in. We literally got so packed that we had to get guys on each other's shoulders. So we're calculating who was the lightest. Let me tell you the two that went up. 265 and 285 went on the shoulders. So these are big boys. Our bums are shining in the back of this glass looking over the entire audience as we pack in. The, we're yelling, hit the, hit the button, hit the button. I remember standing next to Herb who played for the 49ers for two years, standing right next to me as we are basically hugging each other, slammed in this elevator. Somebody hits the one button, the door shut, and then you hear what you never want to hear in an elevator. Alarms started going off. I saw like a red, yellow flashing light, and the elevator, at least from my memory, it dropped between the third and the second floor, something close to half of the floor. I mean, it, I just felt this jolt, and the, one of the guys on top then fell to the ground, and you literally heard weeping. 
As the door began to slowly open, but it stopped at about six inches, and Big Herb, with arms that were like quads, I just remember him standing there and just kind of slowly opening the door as we are jumping out as the elevator's dropping a few inches every few seconds, and we all plopped off onto the second floor, the alarm's still going, as we run all the way down the st to the stairs, I never took the elevator again in that entire stay, went all the way down this other hallway into the meeting room with Coach Frazier standing there looking like this. We got there about seven minutes late. And I'd never seen that happen before. I'd only heard stories. Now, Coach Frazier had the entire front row empty. Now, that would have never happened. Coach Frazier didn't have a culture where you sat in the back. So when that front was open, I knew for sure he had moved people in the front row. He wanted the group of us to sit there, and he didn't even have to say, he didn't need to say a word. You have to understand, Coach Frazier, I heard him yell twice, and they wouldn't even, I wouldn't even call it yelling. I would say like stern tone. It wasn't yelling. That was very different than Guilford High School where yelling was the only way I think the coaches knew how to talk. But Coach didn't yell. He just had expectations, and he expected them to be met. And honestly, the culture's created to meet that. And I just remember literally sitting there, kind of whispering to the Travis, that senior, what's going to happen? And he's like, shh, don't talk now. Just be quiet. Well, we only had about two weeks of 5.30 a.m. running as part of the consequence. That was the only meeting I was late for. Coach, of course, loved early meetings. So from 5.30 to 6.30 for two weeks straight, we would do sprints and gassers and all of that as he would remind us about being faithful and being on time and being responsible. Coach created a culture. And as I mentioned, I don't remember a manual on this. I don't ever remember seeing anything. I mean, certainly I'm sure at orientation, coaches were talking, but it just kind of trickled down. Like, this is just what you did. You knew when to be at a place and when to be there and what to wear and what to say. And it wasn't vicious. It wasn't a culture of domination and control. It wasn't. I never felt more loved and cared for than when I was around Coach Frazier. I was never, I mean, I was scared of him of not meeting his standard, but I never felt that he was abusive. He wasn't cruel. He was quite the opposite. Hand on the shoulder, eye contact, encouraging words. He'd ask me about my mom regularly. He would speak to me about my classes. I remember when I was even finishing as a senior, he was convinced I needed to go to seminary, and he was going to have nothing of it if I wasn't going. I told him at that time I was going to Dallas Theological Seminary. He's like, do you need me to write a reference? I've already been accepted. Oh, good. We wanted to meet Laura when we first got married. He, he was very invested in my life. So the, rather than some like kind of mean general that sets this system up and then it's just kind of rigid and cruel, that wasn't coach at all. I can only imagine what he's like as a defensive coordinator in the NFL. I would just love to see how he engages with his players. Because I felt lifted up even though I felt a good motivation and pressure to be faithful. And that's the language he would use all the time. He would talk about being faithful because he linked football to life. He would talk about being faithful. And I remember we'd have these drills we do during the training camp before school started. I can literally remember leaning down, trying to get oxygen in my lungs as he was about to blow a whistle again. And he'd be speaking to the team at large and he would come, I'm, I'm sure he did this to every player, but he would come up to me and he'd kneel down just quietly and he'd say, it is in moments like these, young man, that you need to push yourself. 
And I'm thinking, coach, I'm just trying to get oxygen. But he's like, you need to be faithful. Push yourself. Don't quit. He would say to the group as we're running, are you going to be faithful to your wife when life gets difficult? Are you going to be faithful in your job when things seem hard? And he would constantly use football as a metaphor for life. It wasn't the end all. It was just a, a practice, a dress rehearsal. And he did that, at least for me, for four seasons. There was a culture that I was just describing to you about being on time and taking your hat off in the building and dressing appropriately. Again, nothing rigid or harsh. Nothing you, never, you ever felt was unfair. It was a culture, and it was, it was felt throughout the whole organization. Every organization has a culture. A culture is made up of customs, attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that define that group of people. In fact, it's not even just organizations. Actually, families have a culture. So what kind of culture does your family have? What kind of organization does your, or culture does your workplace have? Or your, the school you attend? What kind of culture does Hope Church have? Hope Evangelical Free Church. What's our culture? There's no manual. It's not when you become a member, like, here's the culture. Here's the, take your head off in the building, or whatever the case may be. Here's when you show up to service. You better be 15 minutes early. That doesn't happen here. <laughs> Coach Frazier would go crazy to church like this. Do we have a culture of grace? Do we have a friendly culture? Or is, it, is, 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 is it grace or is it gossip? Is it friendly or is it cliquish? Like what's been your experience? Things, right, that maybe isn't desired by the church as a whole, maybe wouldn't ever be promoted by leadership, but it just is part of the culture. Does our church have a missional culture? Are we concerned about the gospel and our neighbors hearing it? In this particular text, the Apostle Paul addresses the church and its culture. It's speaking about things that reflect the nature of what a cultured church looks like. And in this text, we could even say that God wants our church, from this text, to create a culture that reflects the family of God and faithfully does the work of God. And I've gotten to, I've gotten to taste that in a football program. I've gotten to see where there's a familial nature, but there's a goal that we have as an institution. What's that look like in a church? Well, here we get a glimpse of the Apostle Paul, or, or we just more specifically God himself through the Apostle Paul to Pastor Titus, but then ultimately then to us, explaining what a gospel-driven, gospel-centered, cultured church looks like. So I'd like to talk about that with you from this text. But before we do, let me just ask the Lord to minister to us from his word. Father, open our eyes that we may see the wondrous things of your law. And Father, help us not just to be informed from this text, as it's so easy to do, to keep it at an intellectual distance from our hearts and our practices. Help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds 
So we ask with this text, and Lord, honestly, every text that you, by your Spirit, would apply it to our lives individually and our lives corporately. And in this case, that we would be a biblically faithful, God-fearing, people-loving cultured church. Speak to us, young and old, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here are some things that I think Paul is commanding Pastor Titus, the church, and really these elders, if you were with us last week, that were established or supposed to be established by Titus to establish a culture church. And here's the first, and it's in verse 1. A healthy church culture works hard to think biblically about everything. And I get that from what Paul says when he says the first kind of exhortation is teach what accords with sound doctrine. That, that word, what accords with, could be translated what is suitable or what fits sound doctrine. So that is the teaching regarding a whole lot of other issues is supposed to be lined up beautifully and measured with and against sound doctrine. That is, the church is supposed to help connect truth to life. Principles to practice. Or as we've said around here recently, connecting God's Word to God's world. That is when we know it accords with sound doctrine, that it matches what is biblical. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, regarding the nature of life, this, this could be a host of topics in the world. Everything requires us thinking biblically about it. And that doesn't mean there's even a ton of biblical material that specifically addresses this or that. But it requires us to say, Lord, what, what, we've, what have you revealed in your word that would guide us to understand what it means to be a faithful Christian, to be driven by the gospel, to be submitting to your lordship over our lives and our world? Now, please don't hear a concern for doctrine. I think you hear that word, and there's all immediately uh, kind of your repulse, because it sounds like that's an ivory tower thing, an academic discussion. But it's not. Instead of the word sound doctrine, just simply use the word truth. What is right? What is good? What is proper? Which, which family, with even their youngest child, isn't having those kind of conversations? I remember when... Uh, our family went away. This is when we still lived in California. Our, I think our daughter was newly born. My wife stayed back at the cabin with her. We rented a cabin out kind of in the wooded area of California. And again, we're live, working in L.A. County, living in Orange County, we saw a lot of cement and pavement. Right? It is different than being around here where almost all of our yards can have some kind of trees and flowers. I mean, it was, it, it was a lot of pavement and a lot of cars. So we go to this place where we get away in the woods and I woke the boys up early. This is in days when they would wake up early. I don't know what happened. But they were pumped and excited. We get up early in the morning, pre-breakfast. We're going for a walk. The sun is just starting to come up. I mean, it's gorgeous. There's birds. There was a deer. I mean, again, around here, you see those everywhere. We're talking California kids, right? So bear with me. So we're going on this walk, and I even preface it because I was tempted to even go by myself. But I'm like, ah, I'm a dad. I better bring the boys. So I say, here's the deal, guys. We're going for a beautiful walk in God's creation. Let's enjoy it. Right? Let's just, let's just enjoy it. 
Go for the walk, look, beauty. We don't need a lot of talking. In fact, if you're quiet, I tried to, tried to tantalize them. If you're quiet, you might even see some cool animals like bears. No, probably not bears and hopefully not bears. But we'll see something, so let's be quiet and listen. So that lasted for probably 30 seconds. And one of the boys, a young elementary school age boys, right? They, they, one of them goes, has it been long enough? Can we talk now? I mean, let's give it a little bit more. I mean, that wasn't even a minute. A little bit more time. Maybe 30 seconds. Is it long enough now? This is really hard. Okay, let's just talk. The animals will be long gone, but that's okay. And one of my, one of my sons raised the question. We're walking. I'm thinking, you know, he, he goes, Dad, I've got a question. I'm like, well, maybe this will be a good spiritual conversation. We'll talk about the things of this world. And out of his mouth comes the question, why did God make flies? Like, man, I should have done the quiet thing longer. So we talked about flies, and then I've got another one, more serious. How did God make chickens? And I'm thinking to myself, this walk is lost at this point. My older son has his own question, and he says, what time is lunch, and when are we eating it? All right, guys, why don't we just throw sticks or something? But I learned, even on that day, those kind of conversations, long after they stopped being young elementary school boys, are important. And they're off the cuff, aren't they? There's no classroom. There's no set of questions. Questions about flies and chickens are gra- the, a young child grasping God's creation, the beauty of his world. We can direct our kids to those things. So don't think of doctrine merely as like a lecture hall situation. Picture it as walking alongside and talking about what is true and what is right and what is good. When you think about that, we should always be talking about those things. Paul says, if anything is, and he lists things, think about such things. And we could ultimately add, if we're supposed to think about them, then we're probably supposed to be talking about them. In order to create a healthy church culture, we need to be a catechizing church, talking about such things. We've used the word catechize, catechizing, that's an old word, and again, We've kind of tried to implement that more here. And I can only imagine a modern Christian thinking, why do we got to use that big word? And I would want to counter and say, I can imagine for centuries, Christians would be shocked if you didn't know what that word was. So you've got uh, probably three generations where they haven't used the term, and you've got about 20 generations where they did, you lose. Catechizing is an old church word that just simply means instruction, teaching. Formally making sure we are passing on and giving to the next generation what is good, what is right, and what is true about God and His world. That is part of the mission of the church, and that has to be part of the culture of the church. Less a program and more just habits, postures, and practices that reflect the life of the mind. But we can do that programmatically by things like Growth Hour for young and old. Our small group ministry, word and prayer on Wednesday nights. Obviously, corporate worship is when we reflect on what is true, right, and good from God's word. And even just the casual or spiritually intentional conversation that happens between friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, or even in discipling relationships. Here's the second thing that the Apostle 
Paul says in verses 2 and 3. And here he turns to the seniors, the senior saints. But that's not the language he uses. He says older men and older women in verse 2 and 3. I'm not going to define what older means. For my 16-year-old, that would clearly be me. To the 70-year-olds in this congregation, that is clearly not me. So I'll let you define that for yourself. But here's what I think Paul's going to say, and then we'll look at the verses. A healthy church culture is blessed. Listen to what I'm saying. Is blessed by the character and relies on the ministry of its older saints. Listen to what Paul urges Pastor Timothy to facilitate in his church. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness, faithfulness. There's the word Fraser loved, faithfulness. Look at those last three. Older men, sound in faith, they know it is true. They're committed disciples of Jesus. Sound in love, they overflow with a generosity and a compassion that as fathers and grandfathers, they bestow a presence in the church body and in faithfulness. They're steady, they're anchors, they're raw. In, in, as, the, as culture, in the broader culture shifts, as things feel chaotic, as crises of any new generation strikes, there are these older brothers and sisters that have walked with the Lord for decades whom you can grab onto, who will lead you along the way. How about verse 3? Older women likewise have to be reverent in behavior. They reflect what it means to be a disciple. Not slanders. It's just the way they talk is different, I think that word means. It's not all gossipy. It's not all, did you hear what's going on between so-and-so and so-and-so? It's not putting down It's lifting up. Not slaves to much wine. They are, end of verse 3, they are to teach what is good. Christianity rebukes the way our broader American culture makes youthfulness an idol and old age an enemy. Christianity speaks into that and says hogwash. It's actually the reverse. Old age is a gift from our Lord and is an anchor for a congregation. It is a wisdom worked, by, worked on by the Spirit for years that is meant to lead God's people and to raise up the next generation. But we're in an age where we don't want to culture, larger culture, we don't want to talk about death. And when we, people think of salvation, it is, it is the health and the body. We spend so much time on that, which is in part a repudiation of death and old age that Christianity says you don't understand. Paul's depiction is beautiful and taken as a whole in this text. It actually requires a multi-generational church that loves and serves one another. That's why we decided years ago we didn't want to have a a verse 2 and 3 service and a verse 4 through 10 service. We didn't want to do that. We didn't want to have our older men and women in their own service and our younger men and women in their own. In fact, we even wanted not just 
older and younger men and women. We wanted children to gather with us because we really want to be multi-generational. We want to learn from the older generation. We want to see their life and their faith. We want to walk beside them. We want to sing next to them. I'm still formed by being a young boy standing next to my grandmother at first free services back in the probably early 80s, standing there and literally looking to my, I still remember it, I would stand right to her left, and several times if I was sitting down, there'd be a little smack coming somewhere on the shoulder or whatever, and I just remember standing next to my grandma and watching her sing and literally being formed by the moving of her soul in worship. And you know what it taught me? It taught me that God has worked in her life, that God is worthy of worship. It taught me numerous things that even singing the song myself didn't just teach me. Because I would stop and look at my grandma and say, something about the cross, and she would get choked up. And I would note to myself, the cross, something significant about the cross. My grandmother feels that. But that's also true in regard to the older men and the older women doing what the text says. Notice it says, it uses language like train, teach, urge the youngers, model for them. We all need that. Even though I was only in junior high, I still remember the young college student named Brian Erickson. The Erickson family was at first free for many years. Maybe they still are. But Brian was this older kid, six, seven years that invested in a younger kid like me. And me, a little 6th, 7th grader, looked up to Brian big time. And when he would come in and he'd lead one of our small groups in the youth group, or he'd come, we'd play this, this kind of game with balls where we're kind of tagging people, and he was always the toughest to get. And I would just always want to get Brian Erickson out, and rarely did. But even so, I would see that instead of drilling a kid with the ball, he would throw it softer, depending on the kid. I saw that. Then I saw my own little boys look up to these two New Zealand Samoan kids named Peter and Liam Timoti. And even remember one time with my kids wanting to wrestle nonstop to Peter and Liam when they were in junior high and high school and these, these clink kids always wanting time with them. And I overheard Fauna, their dad, say, now you give them attention like an older brother should. You give them attention. And they did. And all my boys would talk about is Lehman Peter, Lehman Peter, Lehman Peter. And even my big one got carried on their shoulders how many times because they were good older brothers. Or I see the way my boys walk in and little kids will run up and say, Ben, Ben, Ben. And I say to Ben, like I learned from my older brother Fauna, you give them time. You're an older brother. This is your church family. You give them time. Because I remember what they wanted when they looked up at Liam and Peter. I remember what I looked at, thought of when I looked at Brian Erickson. Notice how this text speaks to that. But it's not even just kids. It's a, a man in his 60s encouraging a man married in his 30s, sitting down and having breakfast, asking, are you loving your wife well? Are you handling the pressures of work well? It's a woman in her 60s and 70s sitting down with an exhausted mom with young kids and having empathy and understanding and encouraging, exhorting, walking alongside. There's no manual that produces that. 
We can't cover that in a membership class. But that's exactly what God's Word is asking a cultured church to do. We were in St. Andrew's Baptist Church for three years when we lived in Scotland, and I'll never forget Millie and Ian. I've never learned hospitality more than from them, even though he would regularly and teasingly say, Go home, Yank! Always with an elbow or a backhanded smack from Millie, his wife. But he didn't mean it. He had me in his home way too many times to mean that. I saw that the way of their hospitality, the way they dealt with loss and suffering, I could ask him questions about this country and about Christianity, and he invested in a, a young couple in their late 20s. Or how about an elder chair named Paul in our church? He had such a thick Scottish brogue that sometimes I would have to put my ear literally toward him to understand what he was saying. He was from the, just the southern tip of the highlands of Scotland. That's like a totally different world. A business, successful businessman ministering in this church in leadership. And I'll never forget that church meeting on Sunday nights. On a Sunday night when there was a divide in the church. Not a split, like it was, but a disagreement. And there was a disagreement was between the young and the old people. So here I was, 28-ish years old, sitting next to Laura, listening to a bit of a strife between the old and the young in this Baptist church that had been around for centuries. And up stood Paul, grand respect across the church. And he spoke with passion. And I literally still get emotional thinking of him exhorting the church to be faithful. And I was literally two rows back literally just trying to wipe the tears because I got a glimpse of leadership. And it was not leadership where he was fighting for his rights. He grounded the gospel as the basis for what he was exhorting. And he was calling the church to be faithful in that. And that one conversation shifted the entire movement of the meeting. And I saw it. I saw a man who Paul would say is sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. There it was. And I wasn't thinking of this text at the time, but that was seared in my memory so that at the moment I read this text in preparation for this week, I thought of Paul. Or I thought of Millian Ian. Or I thought of a young Brian Erickson or a Liam and Peter Timothy. Or I could even think of a host of you. Some of you have been part of the church for decades. Maybe you've raised your own children. Well, look around you. You've got more children. You've got younger brothers and sisters that need your love, the certainty of your faith, and they need the anchor of your steadfastness, especially now in this generation, in these days. They need to listen and watch you. They need you to be models. We need you to be models for us and to minister to us. The text ends in verse, verses 4 to 10, and it speaks to the young. I summarize those verses by saying that a healthy church culture seeks to raise up disciples who are young in the faith and in age. The, the church culture Paul is exhorting is really the culture of a healthy family. You'll notice it starts with older and younger men, then it goes to younger men and women. 
And then it moves even to bond servants. This is, this is what, it, in, in more academic sense, these are what are called the household colds. That there's kind of a, a, every position in a family, every situation should be thinking about how to live faithfully the gospel. And while the exhortations to the young would be useful to explore in detail, and maybe another time we could do that, the general thrust is this, intentional relationships. That's the thrust. Intentional relationships that raise up disciples for living faithfully as a Christian in every part of life. That's what it is. We could look, we could look at what's there, but it's, it's assumed that the older are investing in the younger, and the younger are craving and modeling what they see from the older. I remember part of this football culture, there was a guy named Travis who was a couple years older than I, who my first couple years when I was at Trinity, he was checking in on me all the time. He would stop by the dorm room. He'd call me over the summer. He'd call me during Christmas break. He invested in me. And for, for those first two years, I literally thought it was primarily because Travis was just that unique of a guy. In many ways, I think he was. But I found out something about the culture when my first week of my junior year and I'm getting orange juice at breakfast, and Coach Fraser comes up to get his regular, he loved apple juice, he's getting apple juice. We literally have our cups right next to each other at this little cafeteria machine. And off the cuff, not even looking at me, he's looking at his glass, he says, so who are you going to pick? I said, who am I going to pick? He says, which freshman are you going to pick? You see, every junior, I expect, to be investing in a freshman and to do that when they're juniors and seniors. And immediately I thought of Travis. Oh, okay. He would call. He would stop by. Coincidentally, his locker was right next to mine. And not that Travis wouldn't have on his own, but I'm guessing a little bit of help from a coach, Frazier. Again, never had to yell. I mean, Frazier, this is yelling for Frazier. Come here. I need to talk to you. That's about as loud as I've ever got. But he created a culture that you had tasted investment, and now you want to give it back. And he expected that, as a loving father would do. So I looked at the table, the group of freshmen I was sitting near, I said, pointed at a guy and said, probably that guy. I said, yeah, I was thinking him or so-and-so, but good choice. All right, have at it. And regularly he would check in on me about me checking in on a freshman. How many players did he do that for? You've got 80-some guys on the team. You're running a program. He had three of his own kids. How many meetings did he have off the cuff at orange juice collection time, right, when he's literally checking in on mentoring programs? That's a culture creator. See, these descriptions in these verses are simply samples of a thousand ways the gospel should inform and direct our lives. Brothers and sisters, that's what I think God's Word wants to teach us today. Let me even say it this way. I think there's no manual for this, right? There's, there, there's, no, there's no simple program. In fact, I think programs kind of break down ultimately. It's really about modeling the faith, loving people, and being intentional. And that ultimately has to be a work of the Spirit. And we can know that God's word would not be commanding something that ultimately he's not willing to do. So we need to pray for this. That Hope Evangelical Free Church would have 
the kind of culture where the older men and older women are models of faithfulness, of love, and steadfastness. And the younger men and the younger women are mentees under their leadership. And all of us in our stages of life and our ministry together have intentional relationships that are making and forming disciples for the purpose of being on mission. A couple months ago, maybe longer than that now, I, I gave us, as a church, I went through a short series that I called Hope Church 2025. They're visional goals. And I put them in your notes for you this morning so you could, you could see what ultimately we had talked about. And I gave four things that ultimately I, I think are culture realities. The, 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 you, you, don't, you don't program these, though you can do some things to get them underway. I mean, to be fair, Coach Frazier had a program that juniors and seniors would mentor freshmen and sophomores. That's kind of programmatic, but it's pretty organic too. And those four are these, that we would be a shepherding church, think heart. A catechizing church, think head. A neighbor-loving church, think hands. And a reproducing church, think harvest. And just, just the first phrase of each of those, a shepherding church forges a church culture of one anotherness. It totally reflects our text today. A catechizing church would be one that restores the church's ancient practice of the life of the mind. We think biblically about everything. Verse 1. A neighbor-loving church would empower the church's participation in the mission of God. And a reproducing church would develop the church's reproducing nature by strategically raising up disciples. Those are cultural visions. And I think we're working toward that. But I think we can do better. None of these are merely a program, by the way. They're really a collection of intentional people who are like-minded in postures, principles, and practices, i.e., they're a culture church. So that's my prayer. In fact, as I close the message this morning, that's what, I, that's what I'm going to pray for us, that the Lord would cultivate among us a people that reflects the heart, the head, the hands, and the harvest of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word which teaches us, it trains us, maybe even can rebuke us, but exhort us even out of love and grace. Father, we want to be the kind of church that the Apostle Paul exhorted Pastor Titus. We want to be the kind of church that is led by the strength and the powerful witness of our older brothers and sisters. We want to be the kind of church that has as a place for the young where they're welcomed and participating and invested in and encouraged in their role. Father, I pray that not even just for the young adults that are here, but even for our kids who right now listening, sitting next to mom and dad or grandpa and grandma, that they too would be ministered to by the culture of this church. So Father, help us to be faithful in this regard. I pray that your spirit, 
as I prayed at the beginning, would take these words that spring from your text and the text itself, not just to inform us, but to transform us. That we may see them and, Father, that we, we may respond. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.